0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
1: Welcome to The Bad Broadcast. I'm your host, Maddie Murphy. Well, 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 we meet again on Monday at 11 a.m. For most of you anyway. Um <laughs> welcome back to the bad broadcast. I am, of course, named Maddie Murphy, and I am your head broad in charge. So today we are we're talking we have two different segments. I'm kind of I I don't know. I've done this before, um, but I wanted to do it this week. And one of our segments is a Dum Dum Club check-in. That's gonna be at the end. And our first segment, kind of our main, our main dish today, is all about ladies. Lots of women in this episode. Lots of girl talk. This is kind of a bad broad history lesson. It's I called it that because this is, of course, the bad broadcast, but also the women we're about to learn about are the definition of bad broads. I decided on this episode because I am recording on International Women's Day. But, you know, I got to be totally honest with you guys. I'm not even really sure what International Women's Day is, like what that means. I feel like it's little bit performative. It's a little bit taken over by just social media posts. That's kind of like the extent of the holiday. I just feel like it's an excuse for guys who go to AlphaCon to post a picture with their mom and be like, happy International Women's Day to all you women, but especially this one. Love you, mom. Uh, But then in reality, they like spend their free time on Tinder asking girls how much they weigh. You know, like I feel like that's kind of the that's Kind of what happens on International Women's Day, uh, but like, thanks for the holiday, I guess. But around here at the bad broadcast, every day is International Women's Day because you know, we only hire women here. I am the only person who works here, so so far, we're batting 100, and I intend to keep it that way. <laughs> uh, but it's also Women's History Month, which I think it's safe to say if they like dedicate a month to your history, it's probably because society as a whole has either like abused, ignored, or pushed you out of most historical events. Like if they have to designate a month and be like, this one's your history month, it's probably because all of history should have been about them. And they were like, oh shit, we forgot. We forgot to like add them in. And you know, nobody knows about them. Let's just give them a month. It's like, cool. Thanks for the, the month. I'd rather have a history book though. Like I would rather my history books be full of women uh, than just full of men still and giving one month to women's history. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's a little bit pandering. I'm just having a bad attitude about it. I I don't know. It's fine. We're all fine. Let's move forward. (laughs) Uh, But today we're talking about a handful of women who I never learned about in history. Uh, Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'll name these women and you guys will be like, this is so obvious. We all know who they are. But I had not heard of them until I began doing research on them. So I just wanted to pick women who weren't as discussed. You know, like, yes, we all love Michelle Obama and RBG and Dolly Parton, but these women that I'm talking about today are just criminally unsung heroes. When you hear these women, like when I tell you what these women did, you're going to be extremely confused on why you have never heard of them. So I can't wait to get into that. I know that I could make this episode very long. I could add hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women to this list, but we had to narrow it down because we don't have that much time. So I just picked a few. And if you think that this history lesson is going to be boring, then you don't know me and you don't know these women because your brain is going to explode. And I'm going to make sure of it. Another reason I love learning about these ladies and I love learning about women in history is because I kind of feel like we owe everything to them. We owe everything to the women who came before us. I'm a firm believer in that because the way that they lived and the paths they laid out made it possible for us to live the way we do. And hopefully the way we live lays a path for the people that come after us, the women that come after us. So I I think we owe it to them to talk about their stories and learn their names and and tell people about them. And next time you're in history class, I don't know. I don't know. I know some of you are in high school. A lot of you are in college. So next history class, you're going to be able to raise your hand and be like, "Hey, why don't we learn about this lady?" And they're going to be like, "You want to know why? Because a man wrote this curriculum, and he left out all the cool things that women did." Uh, I'm fine. I'm not bitter. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's uh. Let's just dive in. I'm going to dive into uh, our list of leading ladies and certified bad broads. We're going to kick it off with a woman who is full of grace and tenacity and her name is May Jemison. So May was born on October 17th. She's a Libra queen like me. Um her dad was a maintenance supervisor and her mom worked as an elementary school teacher, but May knew at a very young age that she wanted to study space. She was also just a feminist icon from an early age, okay? She studied human physiology and nature and other sciences. And she would tell her teachers, she'd be like, hey, I want to be a scientist when I grow up. And in this day and age where May was growing up, obviously all the adults in her life thought that meant that she wanted to be a nurse. And May was like, bitch, no, I'm going to space one day. Not a whole lot of encouragement from her teachers growing up, but her parents always supported her. May also studied ballet all through her childhood and entered high school at 12 years old. I want you to picture yourself at 12 years old how do you think you do in high school? How do do you think you do? Pretty good? Uh, That's what I thought. So May always loved dance, but when she graduated high school at 16, she started her college career at Stanford. And as a black woman, she, of course, experienced a lot of discrimination from her teachers and her peers. But in her own words, she said that she was naive and stubborn enough and that her youthful arrogance helped her. She also said that some arrogance is necessary for women and minorities to be successful in a white male-dominated society. Yes, May. Yes, May. Work. Um, So during her senior year, she debated between pursuing a career in dance or going to medical school, and medical school ended up winning out. So after she graduated with her BS in chemical engineering and her BA in African and African-American studies, yes, two degrees, two degrees, she began at Cornell Medical School and joined the a cappella group Here Comes Treble. (laughs) Just kidding. She didn't. But uh, Cornell is forever tainted because of Andrew Bernard. Anyway, uh, she did not join Here Comes Treble, but she did continue to study dance while also pursuing, pursuing her medical career. And then she served in the Peace Corps in 1983, which honestly is a lifetime accomplishment in and of itself. All of this is like, I feel like you can take 1% of the things this woman did and it's incredible, but that's just, again, 1% of what she did. So after she got back from working in the Peace Corps, she worked in private practice and then she continued taking graduate level engineering courses. Then in 1985, she applied to NASA's training program and was selected out of 2000 people who applied. She selected, I think it was like a group of 10 or 11 to be in NASA astronaut group 12. This was actually the first group selected after the Challenger disaster. I just thought that was an interesting little fact. Anyway, so May's selection and eventual travel to space made her the first Black woman ever in space. She spent 190 hours, 30 minutes, and 23 seconds in space and orbited the Earth 127 times. People who learn about space, people who enter space, people who just have an interest in space they blow my mind. And also I'm a little bit scared of you because the other day I was driving home and I was like driving down a hill and I saw a little flicker in the sky. It was probably like a comet or like a satellite or like an alien or something. And my brain broke because I started thinking about space and literally just thinking about one thing in space, just thinking about like the moon or the sun, um, really freaks me out. Really freaks me out. Never forget that episode where I said that I didn't believe in space and i was just about to say like obviously i believe in space but it's really not that obvious i'm not i'm not too sure about that but i do remember that i said i don't believe in space and then that i got a really mean email and at the end she was like by the way i know you don't believe in space but i'm a scientist so i can come on the podcast and teach you about it after she had sent me like the meanest email i'd ever received so just out of pettiness i now continue to not believe in space because of that one lady anyway back to may when she got back to earth after living on the space station and orbiting the earth a million times. She founded a technology research company, a nonprofit educational foundation. She's written books. She's even appeared on Star Trek. She's had several honorary doctorates, several. I can't even get my hands on an honorary associates from the state college I went to for like eight years. Um, I'm still working on it though. I also could not even begin to list the awards this woman has won. I mean, you name it, she's won it but why don't we hear about her more? I don't have an answer for you, but I do have a solution and the solution is all of you go tell one person today about the incredible Mae Jemison, the first black woman in space and so much more. She was a fun one to research. She I I really liked researching her because she yeah, she had this background in ballet, so when she went to space, she brought like classical music and she brought like art and posters from her ballet academy. I don't know, I just love that she had these two parts of herself and she didn't give up either one. I just love that she she melded the two together and was true to herself her whole career. I love that. All right, this next historic bad broad I'm going to teach you about is named Nancy Wake and she's about to become your favorite person that you've ever learned about. I was literally fist pumping when I was learning about her. So, just strap in, okay? So Nancy was born in New Zealand in 1912. She lived with her family there and then she moved to Australia until she was 16 when she ran away to New York. Uh, after New York, she eventually made her way to London. Nancy, while she was in London, met a wealthy French industrialist named Henry. Actually, I guess that's that's not how you would say, because it, it's the French spelling with an I. So it'd be Henri. Yes, am I correct? Uh, but she married Henri, and they were living in Marseille, France, when Germany invaded during World War II. So after France fell in 1940, she joined an escape network, not not to escape, to assist people in escaping. She, specifically, the network that she joined is called the Pat O'Leary Line. I guess. I had never heard of it, but it's a very famous escape network from World War II. The Pat O'Leary Line was a French resistance organization that would help allied soldiers and airmen evade capture by the Nazis. Uh, The Pat O'Leary Line eventually was betrayed and taken down from the inside. In the process of that, Nancy's husband was taken, tortured, and executed by Gestapo, which, of course, crushed her. So after this, she ended up fleeing France and making her way back to England. In England, she joined the SOE, that's, called, that's the uh, Special Operations Executive, and she trained in several programs in the SOE, and every single one of her superiors said, quote, she put the men to shame with her cheerful spirit and strength of character. We love that for Nancy. So the SOE was an amalgamation of three secret organizations whose purpose was to conduct espionage, sabotage, and I'm pretty sure this word is reconnaissance. Reconnaissance? I'm not really sure. Too lazy to Google it, um, and occupied Europe against the Axis powers. However, they refused to put a woman in combat. The SOE refused to put Nancy in combat. Uh, they said that it was a bad idea because they were too fragile, but boy, would they be proven wrong? Women actually were a wonderful asset in world war II because Nazis were shocker, uh, sexist and racist and horrible. Uh, so they didn't expect a woman to be able to be a spy. So if if they ever saw a woman, they just wrote her off. They never expected her to be a threat. So eventually, after lots of begging, her superiors sent her out into combat. And they warned her before she went out. They said, you're either going to get killed or captured. And Nancy, unfazed. She was like, I'm going to kill Nazis or I'm going to die trying. Like she was not, she was not ready to back down. So after she was trained, she was sent to France. She was sent to France to fight. She was sent to her camp and she won the trust and the support of men around her because Nancy was helping them blow up bridges. She was sabotaging trains. She was smuggling weapons and prisoners, and she was gathering intelligence. She was quite literally doing the most. So Nancy's operation even helped lay the groundwork for the D-Day invasion. I don't know if you've heard of it, just basically the most major turning point in World War II. And I got to say, Nancy was a brazen bitch because she raided, she raided Gestapo headquarters in broad daylight. The Nazis knew Nancy so well that they even gave her the nickname, the White Mouse, because she was so hard to capture. They literally could not get this woman. And she was attacking them in broad daylight. You know how how good you got to be to evade Nazi escape when you're literally knocking on their door? So one day she was away from camp. Uh, She was like several hundred miles away from camp, somewhere in France. And the Nazis ended up finding her camp specifically and bombing it. And she had no way to contact the SOE. So what she did, she took off all of her gear, all of her army gear. She found like a, a dress. She just wanted to look like a housewife. She got a dress and a bike. She got on the bike and rode over 300 miles in two days. She evaded Nazi capture She somehow avoided the Gestapo 300 miles in two days on a bike, guys, in a dress after being in combat. That's what she did. So she got back to her base camp. She continued to fight. And then, obviously, of course, the war ended. But when the war ended, she had killed more than 1,400 Nazis, one of which she killed with her bare hands. Her bare hands. She killed a Nazi with her bare hands. Later on, somebody asked her if she, was, if she was ever afraid. And in her words, she said, I was never afraid. I was too busy to be afraid. If I could sum up what it means to me to be just an extremely powerful woman, it's a woman who just gets things done. She was too busy to be afraid. Nancy, Nancy, putting every man in history to shame. Like, why is she not? Why is she not somebody we learn about during World War II? Every single war hero or war movie or whatever is all about a dude. I want a war movie about Nancy Wake, who kills Nazis with her bare hands, throws on a dress, and rides 300 miles in two days to get back to her men at base camp. Anyway, so after the war, she ended up remarrying, and she spent the rest of her life between England and Australia. She actually died pretty recently, 2011, and her dying wish was to be scattered over the mountains where she fought during the war. Oh my gosh, Nancy, the Nazi killer wake. Please, please, can we get a movie about this? This episode of the podcast is supported by Liquid IV. You know, I really wish that hydration was not as important as it is. You know, I, I always hear about it and people are like, you know, stay hydrated. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I always want to say that that's not true, but it is Actually, true. Turns out being hydrated is like a pretty important part of remaining alive, you know? So, one goal that I always have I always have my big water bottle with me and I fill it up with water and I try and just chug it all day. I've got my emotional support water. And when I'm not getting quite enough water in, I just pop a little liquid IV. Or if I feel myself feeling dehydrated and I'm like getting a headache or something, maybe you just had a night out, you need a little extra push in the morning. Liquid IV is incredible. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates faster and more efficiently than water alone. Liquid IV has incredible hydration flavors also, like watermelon, lemon, lime, strawberry, pina colada, and more. My personal favorite is the strawberry. And I know you might be asking yourself, how, how does it do that, Maddie? How does Liquid IV hydrate faster and more efficiently than water alone? Well, let me tell you, The science. Liquid IV contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. It's got three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks, and it's made with premium ingredients. There's no GMO. It's free from gluten, dairy, and soy. So what makes Liquid IV so effective? Well, it's the science of CTT. That stands for Cellular Transport Technology. It's designed to enhance rapid absorption of water and other key ingredients into the bloodstream. So one stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water really does hydrate faster and more efficiently than water alone. So grab Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code BAD at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code BAD At liquidiv.com. Experience better hydration today at liquidiv.com. Promo code BAD. This episode of the BAD broadcast is supported by Diggs. When Diggs CEO Zell adopted his rescue dog, he found there weren't very many high quality, well designed products out there for her. He founded Diggs to give pet parents a better option. All of their products are made to baby industry material standards because our pets deserve the very best. Diggs has a very special in-house team of designers that work to develop every product to be the best it can be. Their products are designed with a safety first mindset, but they're also aesthetically pleasing. And I do want to add, they are like so high quality. They're so durable. And my cats now just sleep in them. Uh, they prefer them to our bed or their bed. They literally just sleep in them. I'll post a picture on Instagram so you guys can see it. Diggs Passenger Travel Carrier is a stylish, safe way to travel with your best friend, made for dogs and cats up to 18 pounds. I really got to watch Tofu's diet because he is getting up there. He's almost... Almost too big for his carrier. It has received a five-star crash test rating, which is the highest score from the Center for Pet Safety. So bring your pup or your cat along in the car, on the plane, on the subway, anywhere. It also includes a custom bed with a built-in pee pad so you don't have to worry about accidents on the go. That was the worst part of our carrier. Like, every time we had to take Tofu to the vet or the pet hotel, immediate pee in the carrier. So... Go to www.digs.pet, P-E-T, and use code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off of your first purchase. Again, that's www.digs.pet, and that's digg pet and use the code PODCAST20 for 20% off of your first purchase. Hey, it's Patrick Starr. I'm coming straight to you with my very own podcast, Say Yes to the Guest. I'll be hanging out with some of my fiercest friends and spilling some serious tea on business, beauty, and being a boss-ass bitch. With me, baby, you'll never know what will happen. Find Yes to the Guest on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where podcasts are played. Start streaming and downloading now. And don't forget to subscribe because every Monday we're going in. We got so much to chat about. So turn it up and say yes to the Guest. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So our next leading lady is named Eloise Cobell. I don't know if it's Cobell or Cobell. Um, but either way I'll just call her Eloise, but also she is a member of the Blackfoot nation. So she also goes by yellow bird woman. And I'm going to read to you this little excerpt um, about her. They can just To explain it a lot better than I can. So Eloise, who, like I said, is a member of the Blackfoot Nation, fought tirelessly for government accountability and for Native Americans to have control over their own financial future. During her life, she won countless awards, founded the first Native American-owned bank, and successfully won a class action lawsuit against the U.S. government. So, Eloise was born on November 5th, 1945, on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. She's the middle of nine children, and she was the great-great-granddaughter of the respected mountain chief of the Blackfoot Nation. Um, Her great-great-grandfather, so the chief of the Blackfoot Nation, refused to compromise with the U.S. government in the 19th century. Um, Eloise grew up without running water or electricity, and three of her siblings died during childhood. When she was four, her father successfully got a one-room schoolhouse built on the reservation, and she attended that until high school. Eloise grew up hearing stories and complaints from family and friends about the Bureau of Indian Affairs or the BIA. The BIA managed Native American owned land and any proceeds made from its lease trusts. But Eloise kept hearing stories about missing money. The story that impacted her the most in this time was that of her aunt and uncle. When they sought money to pay for their medical care, the BIA agent first refused to see them and then sent a check after a long delay. The delay cost her uncle his life due to the lack of timely medical care. Because of the story, she started looking into her own trust money at 18. But how about this? She was told time and time again by BIA agents that she did not understand what she was looking at or what she was even looking for. Just written off, just saying, you know what? You're actually, you're not smart enough to know this. Let us handle it. Because typically when people are telling you that, when people are saying, I just don't, I don't know if you can handle it. I just, I think, I think you really don't understand it. Rest assured, it's because they benefit from you not understanding it. They don't want you to understand because they know that the minute you understand, you're going to be able to take action. So obviously they were like, listen, you don't get it. Let us just let us handle it. Yeah, I'm sure you do want her to just leave it alone because you're probably either taking money from it or just doing something super illegal. Okay, let's continue. So after studying accounting at Great Falls Commercial College, Eloise went on to the University of Montana to study business. While she was there, she interned as a clerk at the reservation's BIA office and saw many people turned away when they came to the office asking for their money. After graduation, she became the treasurer of the Blackfoot Nation. And in this role, she saw that the numbers just did not add up. For all the product going out of the reservation, the money was not coming in. So she began attending government meetings and asking questions. Officials told her that she did not know how to read an account statement, despite the fact that she had a degree in business and had studied accounting. She literally has a full education. I'm sure she can read an account statement. Like it's just, it's mystifying. So when the only bank on the Blackfeet reservation closed and no other bank wanted to open a branch, Eloise took matters into her own hands. In 1987, she helped found the Blackfeet National Bank, which was now called the Native American Bank, and it was the first American bank owned by a tribe. After she stepped down as the bank director, she served as the director of Native American Community Develop Corporation, which was the bank's nonprofit affiliation. In recognition of her work, she received a genius grant from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation in 1997. After she did this, just this like, you know, this small, casual accomplishment, just something, you know not, not too big of a deal. Um, I'm obviously kidding. What's so admirable. I mean, obviously so many things about all of these women are very admirable, but just the push when you see something wrong to not quit until it's made right. And that's exactly what Eloise did. So in 1996, she, along with the native American rights fund filed a class action lawsuit against the U S department of the interior for the mismanagement of the Indian trust funds belonging to over 300 thousand individual tribal members. Kobel v. Salazar, which was the name of the case, Kobel v. Salazar, remains one of the largest class action lawsuits ever filed against the United States government. The lawsuit alleged that the BIA had been mismanaging and abusing the Indian trust funds for over a century. Uh, By the way, that's what they're called, Indian trust funds. Like That's a proper noun. That's what they were named. They were just keeping the money, not giving it to the people who first of all, deserved it. Second of all, it was rightfully theirs. And they didn't care that they left Native Americans in poverty and without any alternatives. So that's great. Uh, Eloise was not only the lead plaintiff, but also raised money for the lawsuit. And she donated over $300,000 from her genius grant to the cause. So after 13 years of contentious court battles, Eloise and her lawyers agreed to a $3.4 billion settlement still not enough, if you ask me, with the U.S. government in December of 2009. So the settlement included $1.5 billion for the members of the lawsuit, $1.9 billion for a land consolidation program, and $60 million for a college scholarship fund for Native American youth. Uh, the settlement was given the final stamp of approval in 2011. So Eloise ended up dying actually uh, just a few months after this. So it got the final stamp of approval in June 2011, 2011, never know how to say it. Uh, And she ended up dying in October of 2011. So besides her MacArthur grant and her status as a warrior among mere humans, the Montana Trial Lawyers Association gave her the annual Citizens Award again in 2011. She posthumously received the Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama and Montana Governor Stephen Bullock issued a 2015 proclamation recognizing November 5th as Eloise Coble Day and I personally will be celebrating this. I normally celebrate November 5th by watching V for Vendetta because remember, remember the 5th of November, but now we're going to celebrate Eloise. Uh, They also set up the Kobol... the Kobol Scholarship, which was named in her honor, it's a merit and need-based scholarship to support students enrolled in the U.S. federally recognized tribes who are seeking post-secondary degrees. The University of Montana has an Eloise Kobol Land and Culture Institute, a learning center for students focused on collaborations with tribal colleges and the storytelling traditions in Native American culture. What a woman. What a woman. It was a, It was seriously, I felt honored to have learned about this woman. And again, just that little singe of rage that I didn't, didn't know about her until yesterday. But that's why we're doing it here. All right, this next one's a little bit quicker, not as not as lengthy of a biography about her, but she's still very, very interesting. Her name is Florence Howe. So Florence Howe was born in Brooklyn in 1929 to Samuel and Frances Howe. Uh, she lived there her whole life. And when she was 14, she entered a highly selective school called the Hunter College High School. She was one of only five women in Brooklyn to be chosen. She ended up graduating early and then went on to Hunter College, where she got her BA in English, then her master's in English, and then eventually received an honorary doctorate. So you might be asking me, well, Maddie, what did she do? Well, let me tell you. So in the late 1960s, she was teaching at the Freedom Schools in Mississippi, where she was trying to compile curriculum for her writing students that centered around women's studies. Uh, spoiler alert, there was no curriculum that centered around women's studies, not, not one not one thing, but she figured that if she wanted to teach women's studies, other people probably did too. So she brought several feminist biographies to publishers and none of them would take it. But finally, the Baltimore Women's Liberation Foundation helped her raise the money to publish it, thus creating what is now known as the Feminist Press. So the Feminist Press, is it's still around today and it continued its innovative program of publishing work in three categories feminist biographies, reprints of important works by women writers and non-sexist children's books. Isn't, you know, you would think that every children's book would be non-sexist, but that would be that would be wishful thinking. So for each category the Feminist Press includes advisory committees of distinguished feminist writers, scholars and educators. So Florence Howe and the Feminist Press played a pioneering role in women's studies. If you've ever taken a women's studies class, if you've talked about it in a, in a class, if you've read anything about it, I think we probably have Florence Howe to thank for that. When I was reading, it was kind of saying like we had the suffrage movement, movement, but then we had Florence Howe. We had Florence Howe who was putting these things in books, was getting them into the hands of people who wanted to study women's studies, thus creating an army of feminists. Who's our current leader? I would say Drew Off Wallow. That's just my personal opinion, but I could be wrong. So thank you, Florence Howe, for leading the way for us to be able to have a place in curriculum, for people to be able to study women's studies, and making feminist literature available to all. All right, the next and final woman that we're going to talk about today is named Annie Londonderry. And she was born Annie Kopchofsky. She's a Jewish Latvian immigrant to the United States. Um, and she became the first woman to bicycle around the world. <laughs> Obviously, there are parts of the world that you can't bicycle across, but she had her bicycle with her on every water travel excursion she went on, and she did make it all the way across the world, and you might wonder why she did this, <laughs> and she did it because she just felt like it. And She used it as promotion for herself. She signed autographs along the way. Uh, let's get a little bit more into her story and why it was important in the, at the time. So, Suffragist Susan B. Anthony said something about bicycling in the New York world um, in 1896. She said, let me tell you what I think of bicycling. I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. It gives a woman a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. It makes her feel as though, as if she were independent. The moment she takes her seat, she knows she can't get into harm unless she gets off her bicycle. And away she goes, the picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. And if anybody embodies this specifically on a bike, it's going to be Annie Londonderry. So for the majority of her journey, she, re- like, she really did just want to do this. She had three kids and a husband at home, and she was like, I'm going to go ride my bike around the world. She kept her husband and her family a secret for most of her journey, but she made a bunch of money, and she just went around, signed souvenirs, gave exhibitions of bicycling, delivered lectures to sizable crowds. She just felt like promoting herself. And then she became kind of this like entertainer. She, The New York Times says she delighted crowds with tales of her adventures that reporters dutifully, dutifully reported, tall tales many of them. One was that she had been waylaid by bandits in France, another that she had hunted Bengal tigers in India, and still another that she had traveled to the front lines of the Japanese war where she was shot in the shoulder. She claimed at various times to be a Harvard medical student, a lawyer, an orphan, the founder of a newspaper and an accountant. With her gift for self-invention and self-promotion, there was as much P.T. Barnum in her as there was Susan B. Anthony. I actually thought about P.T. Barnum when I was when I was reading about her. A podcast that I love, I know I've talked about it before, it's called Time Suck. It's a comedian, his name is Dan Cummins. He just does super long, deep dives into people from history or historic events. He has an episode about P.T. Barnum and it's very fascinating. Um, I unfortunately... Love the greatest showman. Um, so I was pretty disappointed when I learned that P.T. Barnum is kind of the worst. Anyway, so she started her journey on June 27th, 1894 in Massachusetts. So I'm gonna I'm I was really curious about this, like her the route she took to get across the world. So I'm gonna tell you what she did. So she left Boston and she went to Rhode Island and then all over New York, uh, back to Chicago. And then she actually went back to New York. So I think she was like starting that way. And then she went the other way, went back to New York, went over to France. She rode all through France, eventually making her way to Egypt, Israel, Yemen, Sri Lanka, Singapore, Vietnam, China. She then flew to Japan, then rode around Japan, flew back to California, then went all over California through Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, went through Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, Iowa, eventually making her way back to Illinois, Chicago, and then went back to Boston. What a weird accomplishment. And again, she did it just to, first of all, say she did it, to build a career for herself and to make headlines. That's why she did it. Why more? What more of a reason do you need to do something besides, you know what? I just feel like it. So let Annie be a lesson to us all that if you have a hobby, if you have a desire, if there's something out there that you want to do, No matter how weird or ridiculous other people may think it is, just know that when you do it, they're going to be reading about you and say, man, I bet I bet I could do something like that. So we salute you, Annie. Thank you. Uh, All right. Now that we've learned a little bit about smart women from history, let's get into some dumb women from (laughs) current times. I'm just kidding. I don't think that the Dumb Dumb Club makes you a dumb person because every single person in the entire world, has a dum dum club moment, and it really doesn't matter what your education level is or how smart you think you are. You're probably gonna run into a dum dum club situation, uh, but there are a few in this segment today that I that I'm just concerned about. I'm really I'm really stressed about a few of these that I got. So let's get into them. This first one's not one that I'm super stressed about, but she said I thought it was MBA, not NBA. And I thought it stood for Male Basketball Association. I don't know why I said basketball like that, which I think is fair, given that there are no women in the NBA. I, I mean, I agree. It feels like there should just be an NBA and then an MNBA and a WNBA. Like that feels more appropriate. OK, before I before I begin this one, I do want to say that these are the ones that worry me and also just make me so happy. I love when people send me their Dum Dumb Club submission and it's actually not right. <laughs> So so this one says, I just learned that it's a garbage dispose all in the kitchen sink, not a disposal. I hate to tell you this. Actually, you guys know I don't hate to be the one to break this to you. It is a garbage disposal. It is not a garbage dispose all. (laughs) I looked up a dispose all and no results, no results. I mean, I don't know how much more I can encourage you guys to just lightly Google things before you submit them because there's another one that I couldn't even believe. Okay, this one, Um, this one's just a normal one. My four-year-old son has recently been obsessed with learning everything he can about all types of bears. He informed me that polar bears live in Alaska. I told him there was no way that was true and that polar bears live in Antarctica. After a light Google, see, my girl doing the most... A like Google. I realized he was in fact correct. Don't worry. I apologize to him for telling him he was wrong. My mind was literally blown that polar bears live in Alaska and definitely do not live in Antarctica. Yeah. I also looked this up and no polar bears in Antarctica. They, li- they do live in the Arctic, uh, but there are not any in Antarctica. Like there's penguins and seals. There's a couple other species, but you will not find polar bears there. Okay. Next. Uh, hi Maddie. Love the podcast and love the Dum Dum club. Anyway, I am now a proud member of the club. It always starts in childhood. My mom and older sisters convinced me when I was a young child that if I cried hard and long enough, I could get a hole in the front of my throat. They would do this to me to get me to stop crying. They convinced me by saying my cousin, who's a few years older than me, had that happen to her and she had to go to the hospital. So scary as an adult or so sorry, so scary as a child. Now I'm an RN at an ENT clinic. Hey, I went there one time. Ear, nose, and throat is what ENT stands for. And I learned that this cannot actually happen from crying. I went this long in my life and into my nursing career without knowing it. (laughs) It's true. It's like I I was always told that if I watched TV too close, I would go cross-eyed forever. Or if you crossed your eyes, you would somehow get stuck like that. As I say that, I think I still kind of believe it. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Parade because I live and breathe for comfy undies. Soft, cozy, and sustainable. Three words I don't normally use when describing my underwear – but then I used Parade. Parade makes sustainable, creative basics that are so soft and comfortable that you can't wait to put them on, which is usually the opposite of how I feel. This company launched only two and a half years ago with the mission to make underwear more accessible, inclusive, and self-expressive. Since then, they've sold over 2 million pairs. That's 2 million butts cradled in the soft, soft fabric of Parade undies. They have extra small up to triple extra large, which means Parade's inclusive sizing means you will have zero trouble finding that perfect bralette or pair of underwear. Did I mention they're all about sustainability? Because Parade crafts their signature styles with super soft certified recycled yarns. Plus all their products come in biodegradable packaging. We love to see it. And for every Parade purchase you make, they give back to organizations that support reproductive rights, racial equity, and LGBTQ plus communities. So upgrade your top drawer with an exclusive 20% off at Parade. Go to yourparade.com BAD and use the code BAD to get 20% off. Again, that's yourparade.com, so Y-O-U-R-P-A-R-A-D-E dot com slash BAD and use the code BAD. This episode of The BAD Broadcast is sponsored by Tim Coulson Photography. Our saving grace... For all of those who want to take better pictures or have better content or just learn how to use that camera that you got for Christmas like three years ago that you've never touched, yeah, this is going to help you out. So Tim has an online photography workshop for beginners, and it's called The Nursery. It's photography explained in a way that actually makes sense, and there's no prior knowledge needed. That's how I wish everything was in life. Just no prior knowledge needed because I'm usually starting from about ground zero. So it's a self-paced, learn in your own home, on your own device type of class. You can stop and start and watch again whenever you need. And there's a one-time fee, no subscriptions, lifetime access. It's also not camera brand specific. So any camera with manual settings will work. If you've got kids, if you've got pets, if you've got friends, if you've got yourself, you want to be able to take killer photos. So Tim quit his corporate job to pursue his passion in photography, and he's had an amazing career. He shot in over 14 countries for families, weddings, brands. He's worked with brands like Google, Airbnb, BMW, Land Rover, and way more. The nursery course has helped almost 3,000 students take the best photos of their lives. The course is three hours total, but is sectioned into bite-sized videos by topic that are easy to digest, and you don't have to do it all in one sitting take as long as you need. So visit timcoolson.com slash bad. I'm going to spell that for you. It's t-i-m-c-o-u-l-s-o-n.com slash bad for 30% off of the nursery photography workshop, or you can click the link in the show notes. Again, that's timcoolson.com slash bad for 30% off or click the link in the show notes. Okay, this one I'm not really I'm not really sure. I'm actually kind of confused about it. So she says, I just found out today that the phrase is jibe with a b, jibe with, and not jive with a v, jive with. Um, I can't be the only one who was in the dark on this one. So I did look up the definition of jibe, and like j i b e, and it does say to be in accord, or to agree. And the the sample sentence says the verdict does not jibe with the medical event or sorry, the verdict does not jive with the medical evidence. So I think this is right. I think, I mean, I'm sure jive, jive like obviously works there. I think they're interchangeable, but yeah, jibe with a B is a correct word that you can say there. That's pretty wild. That's pretty wild. Okay. Next one. She says, Hey Maddie, I've been sitting on this dumb, dumb club submission for a little bit. I'm 26 and learned that having a first cousin once removed doesn't mean they got kicked out of the family. I fully believed everyone just didn't like slash get along with these people and that they were kicked out. Turns out not what it means. <laughs> and it's so public too. Like, oh, it's my first cousin once removed. Like, yeah, it's my first cousin, but everybody hates her. Um, okay, I thought the phrase grin and bear it was one very weird long word that didn't actually mean anything, but people said it when you were complaining about something. I imagined it spelt G-R-I-N-N-B-E-R-R-E-T. Grin and Barrett. <laughs> I never learned what the actual phrase was until the other day. I'm 23. Good thing I never tried to write it out to someone. That is a good, that's a really good thing, especially when I always just I die a little inside for those of you who have sent these in work emails. Um, Okay. It wasn't until I got married recently that I realized boys don't just snake their little weens through the flap of their underwear and fly of their pants when they pee all this time. I thought they kept the button of their pants done up unzipped and wiggled their guy out as their clothing construction would suggest. Apparently they just pull their pants down a little. I am in shock. What's the point of the little flap on their underwear? The world may never know. Love you. Sorry I made you say ween. I'm going to be honest, I don't think I've I've put a lot of thought into this, but I'm going to bring uh my resident male expert into the room. Just a moment. His name is Matt. We're married. Hi. So I'm 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 still recording, but I want to ask you a question on air. So when you pee, you don't just unzip your pants and just and just and just s- snake your ween. That's exactly what well, right, but You'd leave your pants, pants buttoned. If
0: someone undoes their entire pants to use a urinal, they're weird. And everybody in the bathroom's like, what's going on, dude?
1: Wait, but what about like when you're just peeing in a regular toilet or like, like in a stall?
0: Well, bottom line is men's clothes are designed to just yank it out and pee.
1: Okay. But this Dum Dum club submission says that I thought that they just kept their pants. She said, I thought that they kept their pants buttoned and they took out their wainer, but she's saying, I just learned that they pull their pants down a little
0: oh so she's dealing with a
1: weirdo you don't even unbutton no
0: like here like even my okay these my I'm wearing pants without a- okay
1: I don't need a I don't need a I don't need a physical demonstration right in this moment
0: just, no it wasn't even physical it was just like huh
1: like a I wonder if this should we do a poll on Instagram sometime
0: yeah but it's going to be 99 against one
1: You never know, dude.
0: I've been in airport bathrooms with lines.
1: Okay. Okay. But tell me this. What if you wear sweats to like on a plane?
0: Well, that's, but even still, it's just like a little, little dunk. And then you open the little thing in your undies. A little dunk. If anybody is like dropping the trowel to pee,
1: (laughs) that's a problem. Okay, so Matt thinks it's weird. Matt thinks it's weird to pull down your pants a little bit. I, that would be weird cuz your butt would show. Yes. The 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 verdict is in. Matt thinks it's weird when guys pull their pants down. And every other guy I know would agree. Okay, I'm going to do a poll, though. Okay, okay love you. Will you. Is there another cat over uh, here? Yeah, okay. Okay. One cat. okay, just crack it so they can get out. All right. Well, that was a that was a ride cuz I'm I yeah, I'm really I'm 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 befuddled now because I Feel like the way Matt described is the most efficient way to just unzip, s- snake it out. Okay, moving along. <laughs> Next week's episode is with Matt, and you guys have been asking for him to come back on, and it's a really good episode. Okay. So I've always thought that winning by a landslide meant that you won by just a little bit. In my mind, the expression was referencing standing just barely over the edge of something causing a landslide. So it meant that you just barely won. I was floored when someone recently explained that it means winning by a lot. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty standard one. I, I like that one. It's very straightforward. Um, okay. I've always thought... <laughs> This one's, this one's funny. I've always thought that you were just a master speed Googler on the podcast whenever you had to look things up and it always blew me away. Like how did she type all that in while talking without taking any breaks? I just realized that it probably gets cut out. <laughs> yeah. When I say I'm going to Google something, it usually takes me like 15 minutes and then I just cut all of that out of the podcast. But thank you for thinking that I'm smart enough to do that all at once. Okay, so she says, I thought reindeers were an actual breed. You can imagine my surprise last Christmas when I learned that they're made up. Well, they're not made up. Reindeer is a real species. They are real things. They're not magic and they don't fly. But the reindeer are very, very real. Uh, Okay, my husband thought that Campbell was pronounced Camp Bell. I mean, who can blame him? Oh, this one. This one actually, I mean, I didn't ever think about it, but I was happy to learn this. She said, when I was 28, I realized why concert and event seats are deemed the nosebleed section. It's an altitude reference. So like you're up so high, you can get a nosebleed and it's not a reference to the seats being so bad that people actually get in fights. Uh, Yeah, I never thought about why they were called nosebleeds, but now I'm happy to have the info. Okay, next one. Whenever I listen to true crime podcasts and they say infamous cases, I always thought they were just infamous, meaning they weren't very famous. I just found out that infin- infamous means they are very big and known cases. LOL. I had a good laugh when I realized I was a dum-dum. Yeah, that's a weird word because infamous, you would think it meant the opposite of famous. Um, so I, I don't think that's too crazy. I don't think that's too crazy that you thought that. This one, Uh, did you know that Eminem is said like Eminem the candy and it stands for Eminem's real name, Marshall Mathers? I did know that because people would always call me that in high school because my initials are MM. I shouldn't say people always call me that. I had one friend who called me that. Um, But I'm, I'm mainly curious what you were calling Eminem before you knew it was said like that. Like, were you saying Eminem? (laughs) Eminem? Were you saying Eminem? This one's one of my favorites. I thought that eucalyptus was pronounced like eucalyptus, like a platypus. <laughs> okay, and now this last one. Last one. I I read it probably 15 times. I really tried to get what was being said here. You guys are going to have to help me out. So she says, "I was in my grandma's garden and I asked her why we don't have any cucumber plants because I love cucumbers. She looked me dead in the eye and said, "Cucumbers are pickles." I never knew like Kate really absorbed this sentence. She said, I never knew that cucumbers were just dilled pickles. So she was thinking that pickles came first. Well, she's actually not, not that she thought that and then was corrected. She was corrected. And now she believes that dill pickle, that pickle, (laughs) I don't even know how to describe it, that when you take a pickle and you dill it, that it becomes a cucumber. Which I don't even know. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't really know how that conclusion happened. I don't know how a pickle could be dilled. Um, so I'm just going to lay this out. I'm gonna, I, I never thought that I would do an episode about like a woman who killed Nazis with her bare hands and then explaining how cucumbers and pickles are related. Cucumbers are pickled. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm confusing myself. Pickles are pickled cucumbers. So you take a cucumber and you pickle it, oftentimes with herbs such as dill. And then you have a pickle. So cucumbers are grown in gardens, then pickled, then they become pickles. <laughs> I can't listen to the word pickle anymore. Um, this is also a, f- a fun fact that I, I learned a couple days ago because I've been very interested in learning about Judaism. And I follow this woman who is an Orthodox Jew on an, on a TikTok, and she teaches me all about their traditions. And kosher salt is actually it's not called kosher salt because the salt itself is kosher. It's called kosher salt because it's the salt used in the koshering process. So like, you know, kosher meat obviously has to be treated a certain way and that's the salt they use all like, I guess all fruits and vegetables are inherently kosher. They don't need a kosher certification. So salt falls under that category unless there's like additives or whatever. So the salt itself is not kosher, but it is used to kosher To to kosherify, I don't know if that's the word, Um, but to make meat kosher. So I'm going to leave you with that fun fact, and just thanks for joining me. I know this was a a smattering of different things in this episode, but you know, I just I like to mix it up a little, so I like to give you a little taste of of a couple things. So uh, thank you for being here. Remember to subscribe, rate, review, post on social media. Be safe, be kind, be hot. See you next week. I love you so much. Bye.